Salve, my name is Dr. Michael C. Boykin, and this is Old Theology is Christology. Today I'm going to be looking at the Old Testament, and we're going to be handling this typologically. What I mean by that is we're going to be looking at Genesis 22 as it is fully fulfilled, completely fulfilled, in Christ Jesus. I look at the whole Old Testament as typological. You have the type and you have the antitype. I think the, the, the Old Testament, which is a type, is fulfilled in the antitype, which is none other than Christ Jesus himself. So I'm going to begin by reading from the 22nd chapter of Genesis, verses 1 through 18. These things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so that they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place at which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter to emphasize that word, slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram is a substitute for his son. I'm going to emphasize that as we go through here, as we point to Christ. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is to say to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and your offering shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Let me again define for you what typology is, and again, it is pointing to Christ. You have the type, the anti-type, and you see this throughout Scripture. Now, there are some that, for, that don't like the typology. They prefer the rectilinear because of certain things, especially do, dealing with Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, this has kind of gone sour with them, but I, I, I think the overwhelming evidence, just looking at Scripture, that the typological interpretation is the best. And, of course, we believe that all of Scripture points to Christ. And, and Jesus himself said that to the, to the disciples in the road to Emmaus, uh, that all of the Scriptures that Moses and the prophets testified concerning him. Uh, and it's not just the, the Moses and the prophets, but I, if you look at it, you could probably make a case that everything in the Old Testament is really a, a type of the anti-type, which is Christ. Typology in Scripture involves viewing events, persons, or institutions as shadows or types. Institution would be like the temple. That prefigure and point to their fulfillment or antitype in Christ. The binding of Isaac, known as the Akedah, that's the Hebrew, points to the sacrifice that would be fully realized and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We begin with point one. Here I am. God tested Abraham. God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and sacrifice him to the place I will tell you. And so Abraham, and it, it just, there isn't any, insight into what Abraham was feeling in, in Genesis or what he was thinking. I, I know as a, as a father and a grandfather, if, if the Lord has told me, I want you to take your son, David, and I want you to sacrifice him and burn his body, I, I think it would cause a great deal of uh, trepidation, concern, and, tor and torment, mental, mental anguish, angst. I'm sure I can't help believe that it would also do that for Abraham. And there uh, was a philosopher, the father of existential philosophy, named Soren Kierkegaard. And he, he wrote a book, I think, in 1845 called uh, Fear and Trembling. And he was trying, he was wrestling with Genesis 22 with how could God, what, what's the ethical uh What's the ethical challenge here uh, that God would 
say to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And, and what is the, what's the ethics here involved in Abraham's just going along with it? So he doesn't question God, takes his son, and he's willing to, to slaughter him and to burn his body as a burnt offering because God said to him. This created, uh, you might say, an angst or a, a, an existential crisis in if he didn't see this Christologically, if he had seen this through the eyes of Christ, if he'd seen what God was telling us, that this is a type of what God is going to achieve himself and the antitype, maybe Kierkegaard would have understood this. But when you take Christ out of this account in Genesis 22, God comes out as a monster and Abraham comes out as a child abuser. But in Christ, it takes on a whole different meaning, a glorious meaning as it points to Christ. So God says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Abraham is commanded to offer his only beloved son as a burnt offering. He is told to go and to slaughter as a sacrifice, Isaac. Now, we have some insight, not from Genesis, but actually from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, as to what Abraham may have been thinking as he made this decision. The author to the epistle to the Hebrews says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. When Abraham was just about ready to plunge the knife, probably into Isaac's throat, to offer him as a sacrifice. The angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Christophany or Theophany, as you might want to call it, said, stop, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on There, in that moment, you might say, in a real way, God, again, you took Isaac from death. Because there was a death sentence there. It was like he was dead, and now he, he's alive. He, he received a gracious reprieve. So Abraham is saying, even though God has asked me to do this. And, and, and by the way, Abraham is a child of promise, right? 
Abraham and, and, and Sarah had, this, had Isaac when they were way beyond the age of having children. Certainly Sarah was. So Isaac itself is a, is a, was a divine act, a supernatural act that, that brought him into the world. So he, he was a child of promise. And maybe Abraham has, had come to realize that God was a gracious God and that God was going to do something wonderful, something marvelous in what he has commanded him to do. He, 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 even though he didn't know what God was going to do, he, he still trusted that somehow God was going to do something good in this. And, and we see this, that uh, again, pointing to Christ. Mark 9, 7 is a prime example. Now remember, Isaac was called not only his only son, but his beloved son. And a cloud overshadowed them. By the way, this takes place in the Mount of Transfiguration. And a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. The son is the object of God's love. God's like the lover, and Christ is the beloved in this case. He's, and I, I have no doubt, as I'm sure as most parents, if God had given the choice between Isaac and Abraham, if he, if he had said to Abraham, Abraham, you can either sacrifice your son or you can sacrifice yourself. I have no doubt Abraham would, Abraham would say, take me. But he was not given that option. He, that's, that's not a choice he was given, a decision he had to make. God was very, very clear that it had to be his beloved son, again, pointing to God's beloved son. God so loved the world that he gave his beloved son, his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and then he is to take Isaac to a place that God had told him to go, and that was to Moriah. Now that itself is interesting because Moriah is where the temple was built. This is the temple built by Solomon and then later uh, destroyed and then rebuilt, second temple, and then continued to be added and improved by, by Herod the Great. Oh, well, all the way past Jesus' uh, crucifixion and death, they were still working on the temple. It was a, at the time of Jesus, the temple was just amazingly beautiful. I mean, it, there's just no words for it. It's like one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, you know, e even those who didn't even like the Jews marveled at the temple. Remember, at the time of Jesus, the temple, the temple complex, occupied one-third of the city of Jerusalem. It was huge, and I'm not going to go into it. The, the point is, what do you do at a temple? You offer sacrifices, all kinds of sacrifices, including burnt sacrifices. You know, there's sacrifices of praise and purification. There's all kinds of sacrifice. There's also sacrifice for sin. 
But the point is that where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac is exactly where the temple was built. Je Jesus's life and Jesus is certainly his death was geographically close to where Moriah is, where the temple is today. Uh, and we, we, so we kind of see, uh, again, typologically, we, we see the, the sacrifice of, of Isaac, or at least where the altar is built. If, uh, and we know that Isaac was spared, but where the sacrifice is going to be is where the temple is built. And then also you hear those, I remember those words of Jesus when he says to the Pharisees, talking about himself, greater than the temple is here. The three days it took for them to get to Moriah is typologically or points to the three days that Christ was in the tomb. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. As Isaac carries the wood for the burnt offering up to Mount Moriah, right, it points us to Christ carrying that wooden cross up to Golgotha. Abraham is taking Isaac up to offer him as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Jesus is going up to Golgotha, carrying that wooden cross as a sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even in Abraham's obedience, we, we see yet a reflection or pointing to Christ and his obedience to his father. Yeah, I, I want to point to two things uh, where we see Jesus being tested and his filial, that is his sonship, his obedience to his, as a son, his obedience to his father. He says, for instance, in John 6 and in Matthew 26, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, this is why I came, to do my father's will. And then we have this one where we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and I'll just read the words and make some comments. Then he, then he said to them, he took with, it, with him three of his disciples, Peter and John and James, to pray with him. Because this was, a, this was after the institution of the Lord's Supper, and after the Passover, and Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because this is a time of trial for him, as we will see. He says, my, this is Jesus speaking, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Jesus, I guess, for lack of a better, if you want to call it depression, whatever you want, but he, he was, he was at the point of death. In fact, he, he may wish he, he may wish he would even, was dead. Because Jesus knew as someone who knew the scriptures and quoted from Isaiah all the time. 
but he knew that he was the suffering servant. He, he knew what Isaiah said, that Isaiah was prophesying about him, about what was going to happen to him, that he was, he was going to be uh, undergo tremendous, uh, tremendous, not only suffering, I'm not just talking about physical suffering, because, and, and I don't want to disparage that, but Jesus was not the only one that was ever crucified. And the whole purpose of crucifixion was that of humiliation. A Roman citizen, one of the benefits of a Roman citizen is that you could not be crucified. Crucifixion was that of a slave. It was, it was shameful. It was ignominious to, to be crucified. But the whole purpose of crucifixion was humiliation. The beatings, the spit, being spit upon... Uh, being mocked, I mean, all of that, all of that was to humiliate the person. And that people would see this. That's why it was public. People say, oh, it was public humiliation. So Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, Christ was always, from the moment of conception, we say the word became flesh. He was always divine. He always had, it, it, there was never a time that he, he was devoid of his divine power. He didn't always make full and constant use of those divine attributes that were communicated to his human nature in the state of humiliation. That's, I know that's a mouthful, but it means that the divine attributes by virtue of this what we call personal union, where, where God assumes, the second person of the Trinity assumes to himself a human nature that at that moment, the divine, the divine attributes of his divine nature were communicated to his human nature. But there were times, and to, to use the words of the of theologians in the past, there were times that it's those divine powers went to sleep. Not that they were gone, but they, it's kind of like they went to sleep. And Jesus um, uses those divine powers according to his office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus wasn't just going about doing miracles uh, for entertainment purpose. There was a purpose for those. But when he was not making full use of those divine attributes according to his human nature, he, he lived as a man of faith, right? He, he lived by the word of God. That's what he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the word of God. And here we see him praying as a man of faith. Father, uh, if it be your will, please don't make me drink this cup. It's a cup of God's wrath. But not my will be done, but your will be done. Now God's answer to Jesus was a resounding, no, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath 
to the bitter end. Every last drop. And he does. Isaac is going and he says, My father, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, as I said, Abraham told nobody what he was commanded to do. Not Sarah, not the men who traveled with him, not Isaac. Isaac uh, looks around and he says, we're going to be offering a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering. And here's the fire, here's the knife, here's the wood. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham could have said, you're the lamb. You're the sacrifice. But he responded to something, I would say, a response of faith. He said, he didn't say, Abraham, uh, Isaac, we're going to I'm, not go I'm going to sacrifice you. He says, God himself, not me, God himself will provide the sacrifice. That's really profound when you think of it because that's exactly what it, God himself provided the sacrifice. And that sacrifice is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see this. When uh, we, we look at scripture, for instance, in John chapter 1, verse 29, this is uh, Jesus is uh, coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. Abraham assures him that God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And then looking at John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin, not sins, who takes away the sin of the world. So, here it is, John, pointing to Jesus and said, he's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb, when it says Lamb of God, he's the Lamb that God has chosen. He's the Lamb that God has provided. We didn't do that. God did that. And then uh, we, we, we look at, for instance, in Revelation chapter 5 or 6, where we God, where John is giving a revelation from Jesus Christ of, of this heavenly vision. I don't know what else, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's like the veil of heaven, the glory has been, has been peeled away, and John is looking and participating in this revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Uh, listen to what, uh, again, this verse says from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6. John says, Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. That's what Abraham 
was going to do to Isaac. He was not just going to kill. He was going to slaughter Isaac. John says that he sees a lamb, and this lamb has the marks of slaughter. In fact, you can say that the wounds of Christ, who's the lamb of God, the wounds of Christ never heal. The glory of Christ is that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he is glorified because he is the one that experienced the full wrath of God. It's anger against sin. That's how Jesus is glorified. I mean, even in heaven, what's his glory? Well, he, he's the lamb. He's the sacrifice that has been slaughtered, nailed to the cross. That's where the sacrifice took place. And by his wounds, as it says in Isaiah, by his wounds, we have been healed. And then we come to the ram. The angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord says to Abraham, 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 you know, stop. Do not harm or lay your hand on Isaac. And then Abraham looks up and he sees a ram whose horns are caught in a thicket. This is, in this case, again, God providing the sacrifice. But this ram is a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac. Isaac is going to be sacrificed. God says, stop. Instead, use this ram is going to be a substitute for your son. Uh, and we think about Christ who is our substitute. He bore our sins. He incurred God's wrath for us. He, he by his by his wounds, as I said from Isaiah, we, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed by God for our iniquities. So we see this substitute that Christ died for us. And in this substitution, there is this glorious exchange that takes place where Christ gives us his righteousness and takes our unrighteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us. All of our sins were laid upon. He, he took our place. He was our substitute. So we see this. And then, and then one last thing. The, the ram's horns being caught and basically in a thorn bush reminds us that Christ himself bore a crown of thorns. In fact, I will read to you from Matthew 27. 
verse 28 through 31. And they stripped him, Jesus, and put a scarlet robe on him. Again, mocking him. Point of, point of crucifixion, humiliation. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. The crown of thorns before the crown of glory. Right. So we, we see all of these things in Genesis 22. Again, as a type pointing to the anti-type. All of these things lead us to Christ. That God, again, loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That Christ is the sinless, perfect sacrifice for sin. And that in him, we have life uh, and salvation. Uh, amen. Wale. And I'm looking forward uh, next week to talk to you about Jesus when he asked probably, oh, I believe the most important question. There are many important questions. I believe he asked the most important question. Who do men say that I am? In fact, if you really look at the Gospels, it's about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, each one of the Gospels answers that question a little bit differently, and there are different, different ways of, uh, 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 you might say, uh, uh, the way they reveal this. But when it really gets down to it, that question of when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? That is a question of life and death, truly a question of life and death. Again, Wale, God be with you and looking forward to speaking to you next week.